Let's take our Bibles now, please, and let's turn to Acts chapter 17. We will read the first nine verses. Now hear God's word. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men have, who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Grass withers, the flower fades. God's word stands forever. Let's pray together as we come to God's Word this morning. Our Father and our God, as, as with every Lord's Day morning, how grateful we are for the privilege that we have to be able to gather in the name of Jesus Christ and to be able to come together and to study and to understand and to hear Your Word that is living and active, that is sharper than any two-edged sword that penetrates to the deepest recesses of our beings and exposes all of the things for which we must give account before the Holy God. And Father, we know that your word is that instrument that your Holy Spirit uses to continue the work of transforming our lives by the renewing of our minds. And so that's our prayer this morning as we come to your word. Father, would you have your way with us? Would you show us whatever needs to change in us? And would you continue to teach us to trust you and to seek your glory and to seek your pleasure in our lives and to forsake our sin and ourselves and teach us what it means that to live is Christ, Father. And so, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would come and illuminate the meaning of your words to us this morning, that you would convict us by it, that you would convince us of it, that you would give us confidence in it, and Father, that you would use it to change us. And so may the words from my mouth and... The meditations of our hearts this morning be pleasing in your sight, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, as we come back today to our study of the book of Acts together, we are going to take a couple of weeks here to look at this particular passage, verses 1 through 9. And then um, also next week, we're going to look at it again in comparison with verses 10 through 15, because there's a contrast that Luke intends for us to see here between the way in which the word was received and responded to negatively in Thessalonica and how it was responded to positively in Berea. 
But before we get to that, I want to focus just on verses 1 through 9 on a very specific theme this morning and message this morning that we see playing itself out in the lives of Paul and Silas that I think is so encouraging to us. And so as we come back together here to our study of Acts, chapter 17 is picking up the story of Paul's second major missionary journey, and he's picking it up right where it left off at the end of chapter 16. So if you think back to chapter 16 with me, you'll remember Paul had been traveling with Silas and Timothy and Luke, and they had this this godly, gospel-driven desire and plan and purpose to bring the gospel all throughout Asia Minor, all throughout the the territory that we now know as Turkey. And they wanted specifically to go up into the northern part of Turkey where they'd never been before, into the region of Bithynia. But remember, the Holy Spirit providentially prevented them from going up into Bithynia. We don't know how or by what circumstances, but they weren't even able to go there or even to stop and preach the gospel in the various towns that they passed through as they traversed through the region of Asia in the central part of Asia Minor, the central part of Turkey. And so as they were traveling westward, they weren't even able to stop and preach like their their plan was and their purpose and their intention and their desire was. The Holy Spirit prevented that. And, and all the way across Asia until they got to the coastal city of Troas, where Paul was given by God a vision of a man in Macedonia, all the way across the Aegean Sea, beckoning them to come over there and help them. And so that's what they did, right? They set sail for Macedonia. They came eventually to the city of Philippi where they met Lydia, you remember, and they they preached the gospel in that city and many people came to faith and also many people opposed them strongly. And they were taken, remember Paul and Silas, and they were beaten viciously. And then they ended up in prison there in Philippi until God supernaturally intervened and caused a a great earthquake to shake all of the doors of the prison open and even to shake all of the shackles off of their hands and their feet. And that became a wonderful opportunity for them to be able to proclaim the gospel to the jailer, you remember, and his whole household who all heard the gospel and all believed the gospel and were all baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then you remember that the civil authorities even there in Philippi realized that they had mistreated Paul and Silas. They had broken the law. Paul and Silas were were Roman citizens and so they were issued an apology and then asked to leave Philippi in peace. And so we saw in chapter 16 all of that wonderfully I think, encouraging revelation from God in His Word that assures us that God is sovereign over this world. And God is sovereign over our lives. And He's sovereign over all of the circumstances and situations that we find ourselves in. And very, very often, God even sovereignly and providentially frustrates our best laid plans and our dreams and ambitions and aspirations and expectations 
in order to accomplish his divine purposes, even sometimes when that amounts to unpleasant circumstances for us and suffering for us like Paul and Silas in prison in order that God can do what he ordains to do and purposes to do in working out all of his purposes for the sake of his glory and for his kingdom. And I do hope that all of that has been encouraging to you as we've walked through Acts 16 together. It's encouraging to me to know that when things don't turn out the way I expected, that when things don't go the way that I planned for them to go, when they don't go the way I hoped for them to go, that doesn't mean God's not at work. It means God is still at work. Even when my hard circumstances might make it tempting for me to feel like He's not. He is. He's still at work to do something far greater even than whatever it was that I had planned. And so there's, there's a, a set of twin truths that come to us out of Acts chapter 16. God is sovereign over all of the events of His world, and God is good in all of His purposes, even when His purposes don't feel good. People ask all the time, how are you doing? And if I'm not feeling good, I can still say, it's good. You know why? Even if the circumstances don't feel good and I don't feel good about the circumstances, who's sovereign over the circumstances? And he's always good. And so it must be good even though it doesn't feel good. And that's encouragement from Acts chapter 16. These twin truths are God is sovereign over it all and God is good in it all. And we carry then these twin truths, having them firmly fixed in our minds, into chapter 17 as we continue to follow Paul and Silas along their gospel journeys for Christ and for his kingdom. As they make their way across from Philippi, now across this major Roman highway that's known as the Ignatian Way, they pass through a city called Amphipolis and one called Apollonia, and they come to this place called Thessalonica, which is the capital city of Macedonia. It's a big, thriving metropolis. It's got a population of about 200,000 people, which is a, a huge place in that time. And as they come into Thessalonica, and during their stay there, we see in these first nine verses of Acts 17 that Paul and Silas experienced what they typically experienced during their travels for the kingdom and for the gospel. And what they experienced was suffering for their labors. This is what they do, and they don't change what they do. Do you see that? They labor for the kingdom and for the gospel, and they suffer for their labors. That's the pattern, right, that plays itself out all throughout the book of Acts. As the apostles, and especially Paul, take up this mantle that Jesus has given to them to be his witnesses throughout the world. They go knowing that God is going to sovereignly and providentially order their path and direct where they go knowing that they may not get to go where they want to go. And when they go, they preach the gospel, 
knowing, again, that the response that they're going to get is also governed by the sovereign purposes of God. And they don't go changing their plans when they get a negative response, right? They don't come out of Philippi going, you know, when we went to this, well, there was no synagogue, but when we preached the gospel there, we got beaten for it. And that was no fun. So let's try something different in Thessalonica and see if we get a better result. They don't change anything. They preach knowing that whatever response they're going to be faced with is governed by the sovereign purposes of God. They preach knowing that even if some people or even if many people believe their message, there are going to be people who do not. And they can't guarantee those results. And they endure whatever circumstances come their way. Whatever good kindnesses and pleasant circumstances God ordains for them, they enjoy, like Lydia's graciousness and service to them that they enjoyed in Philippi and Jason's hospitality and friendship and fellowship here in Thessalonica as he puts them up in his house. And they also endure whatever sufferings, whatever hard circumstances that God ordains for them, like imprisonment, like severe beatings, back in Philippi. And here in verses 1 through 9, this citywide mob and riot that the unbelieving Jews whipped up against them in Thessalonica. They, They go and they preach and they serve knowing that success in their labors for Christ isn't measured by positive responses or by pleasant circumstances. They go knowing that in living their lives following Jesus, they can expect to experience and to endure all of the same kinds of opposition, persecution, suffering, unpleasantness that Jesus experienced as he lived his life here in this world. They go knowing that living their lives by faith in God means not expecting to get whatever they want in this life and in this world. And knowing that God ordains both pleasant circumstances and hard trials in order to accomplish His purposes. And so they know that in this life, and here's what we need to learn today, contentment and peace and joy doesn't depend on the circumstances conforming to our desires, on getting what we want, what we hope for, what we dream of. Contentment and peace and joy comes from being satisfied with whatever God gives, whatever God ordains, whatever God provides. Because we know the twin truths that God is sovereign over it all and God is good in it all. So today, as we jump into chapter 17, this is what I want for us to recognize, this very simple reality together before we dive more in depth next week and dig more into what's actually going on here. I just want us to really focus on this simple reality of how these twin truths that we gleaned from chapter 16, when they're cultivated in our minds and hearts, when we're convinced that God is sovereign and that God is good in every single thing that He does, 
those twin truths cultivated in our lives, they bear fruit in our lives that enables us to serve Christ and to walk by faith and not by sight and to endure with contentment and confidence and peace and joy all of the circumstances that God in His goodness provides for our lives. And when we can cultivate that fruit in our lives, God can do incredible things through us like he did through Paul and Silas. And that fruit, which we see growing in their lives in this passage, which comes from the the rich soil of minds and hearts that are settled in God's sovereignty and goodness, the fruit is, is the fruit of a life being empowered and governed by the Holy Spirit, by the gospel, and by faith. And lives that are empowered by the Holy Spirit and by the gospel and by faith are lives through which God can sovereignly work in order to turn the world upside down. That's, I love that phrase. You see it right there in verse 6, right? Turning the world upside down. That's what Paul and Silas we're doing. And I love the irony of it here because it was the wicked, violent, jealous, unbelieving Jewish people of Thessalonica who said those words. And, and they intended it as an accusation and an indictment against Paul and Silas. But in reality, it was the greatest compliment that they could have paid them. And it was the greatest testimony of the transforming power of God that works through the gospel. These jealous Jews were enraged with Paul and Silas. And so they went before the civil authorities in Thessalonica and basically said, we got to get these guys out of town. These men who have turned the whole world upside down have now come here to the capital city, Thessalonica, See, what they mean is, these guys are teaching things that deny our most preciously held beliefs. These guys are proclaiming a message that goes completely and totally against the worldview and the value system of the whole world. And we can't have that. They're changing everything with this gospel that says Jesus Christ is the King and the Lord of all life. They've got to be stopped. That's what they meant. They meant, they meant it as an indictment, as a, as a condemnation of Paul and Silas and the ministry of the gospel. And of course, the irony is that they were absolutely right. Right? The gospel is powerful enough to turn lives and to turn the whole world upside down. To set all of the assumptions and all of the beliefs and all of the ideologies and values of the world on their head But these people were dead wrong about that being a bad thing and needing to be stopped. The world needs to be turned upside down, doesn't it? Because sin in this world has already turned the world upside down. From the beginning, from very, very near to the beginning of this world, from Genesis chapter 3 on, The entrance of sin into this world, the introduction of prideful rebellion against God and suppression of His truth began to upend all of the order 
and all of the harmony and all of the beauty that God created in this world. Death came into this world immediately because of sin. And so all living things, human beings, animals, plant life even, and and in fact, every single thing in the cosmos has been subjected to corruption and decay where they hadn't been before the fall, before sin came in. Subjected by God Himself as a curse against the sin that came into this world. Romans 8.20, Paul says clearly, the, the creation was subjected to futility. The whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Physically, in other words. The entire created order groans under the weight of curse, of the curse of God against sin. What was originally created and fashioned by God as the epitome of His divine handiwork, made forever to reflect His glory and His unchanging beauty, now, since the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden, now it's all been subjected to this ongoing progressive process of futility and corruption and decay. It's groaning, it's crumbling, it's falling apart physically because of sin and the curse of God against sin in this world. And, of course, that rebellion against God and His truth in the garden, which originated with Adam and Eve, was passed along from them as a natural spiritual condition to all of their children and all of their offspring, including us. So that from generation to generation, on and on, down and down and down throughout time, the ways of human beings in this world have been more and more contrary to the designs and intentions of God. Men suppress God's truth in unrighteousness. Romans chapter 1 clearly says. We do things our way instead of God's way. We take God's way and turn it upside down. And so there are escalating ramifications and consequences in human lives in human relationships, in families, in whole societies, in the whole world. In Romans chapter 1, you know, Paul talks all about men exchanging God's truth for lies. And so they exchange the worship of God who is the Creator for the worship of His creation instead. And in all of that, they twist and distort and pervert the creation in order to serve their own depraved Desires and passions. One of which is they, Paul says clearly, exchange the natural function that God designed for that which is unnatural. And he uses human sexuality as a prime example. Men and women exchanging the natural order and design of God for the perversion, for the unnatural, having been given over to dishonorable passions. Men lying with men, women with women, 
being given over to debased minds, Paul said, human beings were filled with all manner of unrighteousness and evil and covetousness and malice. They're full of envy and murder and strife and deceit and maliciousness. They're gossips and slanderers and haters of God and insolent and haughty and boastful and inventors of evil and disobedient to their parents and foolish and faithless and heartless and ruthless. See, The world has been turned upside down by human sin in every conceivable way. And all of that that Paul lists there cuts against the grain of the fabric of God's order and contributes to and and compounds and exacerbates the decay and the destruction of, of lives and relationships and families and societies and the world itself. All the way back in Genesis... It took no time at all, did it, for sin in the world to lead to destruction in people's lives and relationships. Cain murdered Abel with a rock out of prideful, arrogant, jealous, hateful sin in his heart. And then immediately people started fashioning weapons out of wood and stone and whatever else they could find in creation to use in order to inflict violence on one another and oppress one another instead of cultivating the created order for the glory of God. And it didn't take long, did it? Genesis chapter 6 is all for the Lord to declare that all of the intentions of the hearts of men were only evil all the time. Things had been absolutely set on their head from how God had originally ordered them and created them. And so God wiped out mankind save for Noah and his family with the flood. And still, after the flood, corruption spread still across the earth all over again because sin remained in the hearts and the lives of Noah and his family and their offspring. And so it wasn't long, Genesis chapter 11, before God scattered human beings from one another and and confused and conflicted their languages as a curse against their godlessness and their wickedness and their rebellion against Him and His truth. And that sovereign dispersal led to separate people groups and societies and nations of people all doing what was right in their own eyes. Multiplying idolatry, multiplying immorality and violence and wickedness in myriad, every conceivable way all across the face of the earth, setting everything that God had made and said to be good on its head, turning the whole world upside down because they suppressed the truth of God in their unrighteousness. And of course, it goes without saying, that's why. That's why the world is the way it is today. That's what's gotten us to this place that we're in today in the 21st century, even in the United States of America, where we're where exchanging the natural God-given function of men and women for what is unnatural and perverse and destructive. That's gone from being something that was considered an aberration to being considered cause for celebration. And now, we've gone beyond. Men aren't just lying with men and women with women. Now, men and women, created in God's image, are going so far in their rebellion against God as to, as to literally mutilate themselves and their bodies in order to try and proclaim themselves to be something other than what God made them to be. 
And it's, it's just destructive and horrific. And there are countless ways in which the suppression of God's truth has absolutely horrific and catastrophic results in this world and in human lives and human relationships and societies and nations in every conceivable way, politically, economically, culturally, philosophically, ethically, religiously. In every conceivable way, sinful, prideful, human rebellion against the Creator has turned already the whole world upside down. And all of it comes from the upside down sinful human impulse to kick God off of the throne of our lives and to, and to sit ourselves on the throne and say, it's my life and I will live it the way I want. Whatever my desires are, whatever expectations I have, whatever ambitions I have are going to be the governing force of my life. That's where it all comes from. Human beings in their natural sinful condition order their own decisions and choices according to their own desires and according to the outcomes that we want. That's the root problem. And that's turned the whole world upside down and inside out. But remember Paul's words in Romans chapter 8, which is where he describes the futility of this world It's been subjected to because of sin. He also says, doesn't he? That God subjected it to futility in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know, he says, that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we eagerly await the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we have been saved. There's hope in this world, in this upside-down World that is groaning under the weight of the corruption of sin and curse and futility and death and decay, there's hope. And the hope, the, the only hope, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Which, see, doesn't just save people out of this giant mess of an upside-down world. It also has the God-given power to transform people's lives and turn them back upside down through the renewing of their minds. So that all of the, so that all of the wickedness and the godlessness and the sinfulness and rebelliousness and the idolatrous, immoral ideologies and beliefs and instincts and appetites become in the life of a, of a believer... They become seen for all of the perverse, destructive corruptions that they are, and they become abandoned. I don't want to live that way anymore. I don't want the residue of all of that upside-down thinking and and living in my life anymore. And so all of the vile fruit that, that living for self 
bears in people's lives and in this world gets abandoned by the power of the gospel in lives that are being transformed by the renewing of their minds. And the truth of God begins to produce new fruit, new desires, new perspectives, new appetites. New values, new ideals, new mindsets, new behaviors as the Word of God and the Holy Spirit turn things back upside down. If, if, is that even a thing? Turn them right side up as God writes everything that has been made wrong. The gospel is the power of God. Paul says in the very same passage in Romans 1 where he lays out how sin and unbelief has wrought every kind of corruption in this world, the gospel is the power of God for salvation for all who believe in. And by salvation, he means it's the power of God to save us from death and condemnation because of our sin, and it's the power of God to save us from the influence and the power of sin in our lives, to corrupt and to pervert and to destroy The gospel is God's power to train us for righteousness and to reorient us to live in submission to Christ's lordship instead of being the Lord of our own lives. It's the power of God to save us even one day in glory from the presence of sin entirely in new fully redeemed bodies and new fully redeemed heaven and and earth where only righteousness dwells. And what we need to get into our minds here today is that the gospel is the power of God here and now. Even in this groaning, decaying, sin-cursed, upside-down world, it's the power of God to bring change. And sometimes we look at the world and go, it's hopeless. It's sliding down a grease pole and there's no stopping it. There's no change in it. How do you think the apostles felt in the early verses of Acts when Jesus, the risen Lord, before He ascended into heaven, said, I want you to go out to all of the ends of the earth and be My witnesses and turn the world upside down. It was never darker than it was then. It's not darker now than it was then. But they went knowing that the Gospel has the power to turn the world upside down. And that's what had happened in Paul's life, right? Remember all the way back in Acts chapter 9? The divine power of the risen Jesus Christ absolutely turned Paul's life upside down. He went from being a a man who hated God, a man who violently opposed Jesus and the church, he went from being that to being a God-loving warrior against all of the spiritual forces of darkness in this world for the kingdom of everlasting light and life. And, and through Him, God the Holy Spirit and the gospel turned the world upside down. Paul's own life was absolutely upended and transformed by the power of the Spirit within him. And so now, full of confidence in the twin truths of God's sovereign power and goodness, Paul has devoted his whole life to following Christ, to living in service to Christ instead of service to self, and letting the sovereign Christ be the one to call the shots and determine the circumstances instead of always living for his own desires and ambitions and passions. And that's what it means to be a Christian. 
It means to be upside down from what you used to be and recognize that you spent your whole life thinking it was your own life to live. But now your life is not your own. That's what it means. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. What do I expect my life to look like and to feel like if it's Christ, the suffering servant, who's living in me? Or am I spending my whole life saying, I'm not willing to let Christ, the suffering servant, live in me if it's going to mean suffering with him and for him, so I'm going to make decisions in order to avoid and mitigate all of that unpleasantness. Then I'm not living for Christ. And it's not Christ living in me. And I've taken the reins back. And I'm living for self again. See, this... This is Paul. Paul's, Paul's, the soil of Paul's soul has absolutely been rototilled. Everything has just been dug up and upended. And out of the soil of this new heart and this new life that is devoted to the glory of Christ and not his own ambitions. And is absolutely convinced of God's sovereign goodness to be able to direct his paths and priorities. And that is content with whatever Christ ordains for him to experience and to endure, out of the soil of that life grows this fruit of Holy Spirit-empowered, gospel-empowered, faith-empowered, and governed living that is able to make a massive difference in this world because Paul is not all consumed with Paul. And he's not all bogged down with, well, this is no fun and it hurts and... I'm suffering all the time. He's a conduit for the power of God to flow through because his life is not his own. And that's what we see exemplified in Paul's ministry all throughout the New Testament and even here in Acts chapter 17. Paul and Silas were were beaten, remember? With rods severely back in Philippi. That's not fun. I didn't sign up for that. And then they were thrown in jail, illegally and unjustly. That's not fair. That's not what they would have planned for or signed up for or wanted. But here now, Paul's assumption at the beginning of chapter 17 is not that something went wrong back in Philippi. Wouldn't that be the temptation? Something went wrong. We didn't do something right. We need to do something different or God needs to do something different because I'm not okay with that treatment. That's not Paul's assumption at all. And so his instinct is not to start doing anything differently and his impulse is not to complain and to take issue with God. Look, what's the deal, God? We wanted to go to Bithynia. But you had us come here to Philippi and look look how that went. Look what that got us. Paul's response was not to say to God, you know what, next time we're going where I say. And we're doing things my way. But isn't that what we do? That's that's not what I wanted. That's not what I expected. And so I'm going to have to take the wheel back, God, because you're not driving me in a place I'm comfortable going. See, Paul's impulse was the opposite. He was upside down from that, right? Paul's response was to head straight for the biggest city he can find and keep on doing the very thing that brought the suffering and persecution in the first place. Keep on preaching the gospel. 
of Jesus Christ crucified, even though he knows people are going to hate him for it. People are probably going to persecute him again for it. And so that's exactly what they do. They go to Thessalonica. They start preaching. The unbelieving Jews stir up a riot in the middle of the city and go to the place where Paul and Silas had been staying in order to find them and apprehend them. They're accusing them before the authorities. They're accusing them of turning the world upside down. But Paul doesn't complain. Paul doesn't change a thing because Paul's life has been turned upside down by the sovereign authority and power of God so that he's yielding himself willingly to the Spirit's authority. Letting the sovereign God determine all of the priorities of his life and empower the accomplishment of God's purposes through him and be the one to ordain the results and the circumstances, whatever they are, instead of Paul taking the reins back and doing what feels best to him and sitting around wasting his life complaining or changing course when he doesn't like the results himself. Listen to Jesus in Luke chapter 21. Listen to Jesus reorient his disciples' perspective on their lives as he prepared them to live for him. This is Luke 21. Jesus said, you're going to go out and you're going to be my witnesses and people will lay their hands on you. They will. Not might. They will. They will persecute you. They will deliver you up to the synagogues and prisons. You will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. Later in the chapter, he says, your own families will rise up against you and persecute you and make your lives miserable. And this will be your opportunity to be my witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds not to meditate beforehand on how to respond. For I will give you a mouth. I will give you wisdom. I will give you strength which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. See, letting Jesus be the Lord of your life in this world will mean submitting to His Lordship in uncomfortable ways and allowing Him to ordain your circumstances and situations however He will and saying, God, if that's what brings you glory and makes me useful to you, then I give you praise. And you can either take the reins yourself and and live your life to minimize and to mitigate all the discomfort. That's what the sinful self does. Or you can let God turn you upside down. And you can learn to forsake the impulse to be self-governed and to lean on your own strength and understanding. And you can learn to serve Him no matter what. And you can know that just like He promised His disciples, He will not give you pleasant circumstances, but He will give you every piece of strength and wisdom that you need to endure whatever He ordains for your life in service to Him. So that's what the Christian life is, that we're seeing Paul and Silas embrace It's it's the life that is governed and empowered by the Holy Spirit of God and not by self. It's driven by the purposes of God and not by my own desires and ambitions. 
It's lived for the glory of God. Not my own glory, not my own comfort, not my own pleasure, not my own satisfaction. It's a life that is governed and empowered by the gospel and the priorities of the kingdom of Christ and not by whatever worldly me-centered ambitions used to govern the course of my life as a sinner. And that's why here, after being severely beaten and imprisoned in Philippi, the next thing Paul and Silas do is to head straight to Thessalonica as fast as they can. The text implies that they hurried there. Most scholars believe they took three days only to make the 100-mile journey from Philippi to Thessalonica, stopping only to sleep, even though they were wounded. Who knows how they were feeling from all of the abuse they endured in Philippi. They hurried to get to Thessalonica and keep on doing what they'd been doing, even though it had resulted in a world of hurt for them. I'm not sure I would have done that. I think I would take the reins back and say, I need a, I need a break. I need a month off to recuperate and to heal. And I might not even go to Thessalonica. And when I get there, I might do things pretty differently so that I don't have to go through that again. See, that's not even in their minds. That's not even an impulse because they're governed and and guided by the Holy Spirit and not by self. So they head straight for the synagogue. They keep on right into the mouth of the lion. And they keep on preaching the gospel and showing from the scriptures that Jesus Christ, by name, who suffered and who died and who was raised, is the true Messiah and the only hope of salvation. Any desire to rest, any desire to heal, any desire to be more comfortable, to avoid more hardship or suffering, all of that is just transcended by a desire for God to be honored and for His gospel to do its work and for souls to be saved. So they did what they did, even though they knew, and they knew it from the pattern of Jesus' own life, right? Jesus suffered. So they knew as his disciples that they would. They knew from Jesus' own words. His disciples will suffer just like he did. They knew it from their own experiences over and over and over again that preaching the gospel and living by the authority and the power of the Holy Spirit in this world very often means enduring affliction and pain and loss in this world. And they did it anyways. Without revising the way they did it, to try to get a more desirable outcome without trying to target the people they thought might be most receptive. You you know where we shouldn't go anymore is the synagogue, right? Because those people get angry. You know, let's never go downtown and preach the gospel in Santa Cruz because it's it's dark and ugly down there and people are crazy and that's exactly where you got to go. Not where it's most comfortable and everybody's going to nod and say Amen. They never tried to avoid the people they thought would give them the most trouble. They just preached Christ and they left the outcome to the sovereign provision of God because they were governed and empowered by the Holy Spirit and they were governed and empowered by the gospel. Listen, in Philippians chapter 2, Paul writes a letter back to the church in Philippi, right? And he writes it, you know, when he was in prison at a later time. (laughs) Once again, he's been persecuted. Once again, he's been treated unjustly. Once again, he's suffering and miserable. And he writes this 
letter back to the church in Philippi, and he says this in chapter 2, I want you to know, brothers, that all this that has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Is that the perspective that we have on our lives and on our circumstances? Is that how we sound? Is that how I would sound if I'm telling people about the hard trials that God has sovereignly ordained for my life? Are we so devoted to the purposes of God, so submissive to His sovereign authority, so yielded to His sovereign goodness, that even when He ordains suffering, my instinct isn't to think first and foremost about me, but about what good purposes He might have coming from that suffering for His kingdom and for His glory. Paul was in prison again. It just keeps happening. He doesn't have good days. He's not writing to tell people how miserable he is though, right? He doesn't waste any ink saying, oh, it's so hard and how awful things are and trying to get people to feel sorry for him. He goes, you guys, guess what? I got thrown in prison again and God used it to bring the gospel to all the guards. Isn't that awesome? Oh, for that perspective. For God's sovereign goodness to be what governs. My mindset, my interpretation, my response to whatever's going on in my life. Well, that's what happens when a life isn't governed and empowered by me anymore, by self anymore, but by God and by the gospel. And so, any sense of complaining in Paul, any sense of self pity in Paul because of his miserable situation, absolutely transcended by a joyful perspective on how the sovereign God is is being glorified through the miserable situation to bring the gospel to the guards. How else are the guards going to hear the gospel unless Paul suffers and gets locked up in the prison? Paul's thrilled because God is causing the gospel to work in the miserable circumstances to accomplish great good and that matters eternally more than Paul's comfort because his life is not his own. Because he's governed and empowered by the Holy Spirit and by the gospel. And he's living by faith in the Son of God who loved him and gave himself up for him. So you see what Paul means? That's Galatians 2.20, by the way. Life verse. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, in this body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. Jesus is the one who didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself and took the form of a servant and became submissive and obedient to the sovereign will of God the Father to the point of death on a cross. It's the very essence of his incarnational ministry and purpose and Paul says that's who lives in me it's not me who lives anymore it's this suffering Christ it's this servant Christ it's this self-abasing self-sacrificing Christ who lives in me now 
That's what governs my life. That's who calls the shots. That's who decides whether my situation is going to be pleasant or not. The life that I live, I live by faith in Him who loved me and gave Himself for me. That's got to be the description of our lives. Who are we living for? Who's calling the shots? What's governing our decisions? What's determining our perspectives? Our interpretation of the situations and circumstances that we face in daily life? Is it all, oh, the, the fates have conspired against me? Or the evil is, is mistreating me in a way that I don't deserve? Or God is letting me endure something that He shouldn't? Or is God sovereign over it all, or isn't He? And is God good in it all, or isn't He? Is He really the Lord of all, including me and everything that happens to me? And am I okay with that? Is it well with my soul? So the wicked, unbelieving, jealous Jewish people in Thessalonica storm the house of this man named Jason who Paul and Silas had been staying with. And when they couldn't find Paul and Silas, they dragged Jason out to the authorities. They say, these men, Paul and Silas, they've turned the whole world upside down. Now they've come to our city also. Jason's received them. And all of them are acting against the decrees of Caesar and saying, there is another king, Jesus. Again, the irony, right? You see how right they are? And how dead wrong? They're right. There is another king. Jesus. He is the king of all kings. He is the Lord of all. He is the Lord of you. But these people, in their unbelief, were so dead wrong. And their, their thinking was absolutely upside down because they were rejecting Jesus as their king. We cannot let Jesus be the king or it will turn everything upside down. But see, when Jesus is, when He is the Lord of everything, when He is the Lord of all of you, when He is the Lord of all of your life, when He reorients you away from living for self and from governing the course of your own life according to what you want and from interpreting your circumstances through the lens of your desires, So that you can then, with Him as the Lord of your life, when He upends all of that, so that you can take up your cross. So that you can count the cost. So that you can say with Paul, you know what, I've learned to rejoice in my sufferings. It doesn't make me happy. It doesn't feel good all the time. I feel the weight of it. It's hard. But at the same time, you know what, I know God is sovereign and I know God is good and I know there's purpose for this. So praise God and I rejoice to trust Him. When God turns lives upside down like that, so it's no longer we who live, but King Jesus who lives in us, that's when He starts to sovereignly work through us in order to turn the world upside down through the power of the gospel. Otherwise, we're just all consumed with us and our own worries, our own desires, our own comfort, our own agendas, our own ambitions. And we become unuseful. But when God turns us upside down through us, He can turn the world upside down through the life-transforming power 
of the self-sacrificing love of Jesus. And the question to close with is, do we believe that? Do we believe that the same Jesus who turned our lives upside down by saving us from sin and from death, that the same Jesus who took Paul and turned his wicked, godless life absolutely upside down, that the same God who turned the whole civilized Roman world upside down through the power of the gospel that was absolutely unleashed in the first century there. Think of the change. It's remarkable. Unbelieving historians have no capacity to explain how it is that devotion to this Jewish king born in Bethlehem absolutely upended the entire Roman world and became the basis for everything good that was in Western civilization. Do you believe that this same God can turn Santa Cruz upside down when he's working in us, when he's working through us? We're going to plod on in Acts chapter 17 next week, but we're out of time today. We're going to see the contrast between the unbelieving Jews in these first nine verses, their response to the Word of God, and the contrast to to how they responded to it in Berea. And we're going to come into more and more contact as we go on with the power of God's Word to turn the world upside down. But for today, just let's pray together that the Lord will continue to work in us all and to teach us that our lives are not our own. That Jesus is the King. And that the Holy Spirit will continue to subdue all of our fleshly instincts to live for self and and govern us and, and empower us by the Holy Spirit, by the power of the Gospel, through faith in Christ who loved us and sacrificed Himself for us to glorify Him in our lives, in this church, in this world, against all odds, because God can do that. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we praise You for the testimony of Scripture, and we praise You for the reality, Father, that everything that happened in this world, according to the power of the Gospel, was according to the power of the Gospel and the Word of God and the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ turning things upside down in spite of the weakness of men, in spite of the foolishness of men, in spite of our sin, in spite of it all. Father, You were at work in our lives. And so we ask, Lord, that You would teach us what it means for Jesus to be the Lord of all. Teach us what it means to continue to be more and more governed by the Holy Spirit and to allow the power of the Gospel to work in us and through us in this world for Your glory and for Your kingdom. Father, help us walk by faith and not by sight. And help us to be people who can truly say it is no longer I who live, but Jesus Christ, the self-sacrificing servant, lives through me. And so, Father, glorify yourself in your church, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand and as we reflect on God's word and respond to it. We're going to sing on page 11 of your bulletins this Reformation song. And celebrate the goodness of the solid ground of God's Word and the faith that we have in Christ. Let's sing together.